Hello and welcome to Fun Problems, the problems of fun. I'm Peter C. Hayward. I'm AJ Brandon. And this is a podcast designed board game in which you play the role of audience member and we play people hosting a podcast about board game design. AJ, I think you're taking the first turn today. <laughs> well, after defining meta, now we're getting meta. Love it. <laughs> today we're talking about honor amping. But first, follow-up from our previous episode. So the episode we're doing follow-up on was Terminology Part 2, The Rise of the Dictionary. I have a few bits of follow-up. We brought up Snap at some point, I don't remember the context, and it occurred to me that Snap is weirdly both a real-time game and a turn-based game. Like, it has a real-time element, but people take turns putting the cards out, so it's like, we brought it up as a clear-cut example of a real-time game. And I was just like, it's kind of turn-based. Like, it's both real-time and turn-limited. It's just a weird kind of uh, weird kind of little game. Not only do I not remember this, I don't know what that game is. Slap? Snap. So Snap is a game where um, you have a deck of cards, and you shuffle it, and everyone just takes half the deck, and you put out a card face up, and then the other one does. And if those cards are the same, so there can be like dedicated Snap decks where it's all like dogs and cats and ponies or whatever, or you can just use a deck of cards, and if it's the same number... If they are the same number or maybe the same suit, depending on how you're playing it, the first player to slap their hand down on the pile of cards gets to take it. And the goal of the game is to have all the cards. Oh, okay. Hmm. So it is a real-time and turn-based classic kids game that I didn't realize was uncommon until your reaction a few seconds ago. <laughs> Sounds kind of like a Spot It. Yeah, it's like it's like, it's like 1800 Spot It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got some follow-up. First and foremost, I said that the landlord's game was made by a European. It's not. I just made that up. I just I just completely lied to you for no reason. Well, not for no reason. It was definitely fun. I saw you <laughs> twirling your mustache and cackling and, you know, kicking an orphan. It seemed like a really good time, honestly. I was jealous. Listen, it's not the first time I've lied to you, dear audience members, <laughs> and it won't be the last. This whole podcast is an elaborate social deduction game. <laughs> I, at one point, said that Mafia, Werewolf, and Resistance were all the same game. Obviously, Mafia and Werewolf are the same game with a different coat of paint, but the Resistance is quite different. It's in the same genre, it's got some similarities, but to call them the same game was a foolish endeavor, and I apologize profusely. One is, I think, a, a real extension of the others. Like, they provide different experiences, but I think Resistance is just such a clean, nice little, neat game. I'm very glad it exists. AJ. So I said I was going to define game theory, and then I just didn't. <laughs> we just got caught up in, in the conversation and the flow of it, and, and that was missed. Well, that actually relates to a question I wanted to ask you. Ooh. What is game theory? <laughs> My definition of game theory is study of how rational people make decisions based on mathematical models. And so that's a very clinical, heady sort of definition. But basically, it's the study of high-level decision-making at perfect strategy levels. So in a particular given scenario, what would a person who is of sound mind come to as the correct best solution? There's a lot of different game theory, quote-unquote, games that aren't really games you would actually play. But the idea of them is a mental exercise to be able to understand the thought process that goes into these things. The most famous, by far, being The Prisoner's Dilemma. Game theory, outside of Prisoner's Dilemma, most people would probably know about it from A Beautiful Mind. Jason Nash, he worked a lot in game theory, I believe. Uh, I, I might be incorrect about that. One of my co-designers is actually an economist, and so he does a lot of kind of pure 
economic like university papers and stuff like that he also teaches at university and so it's a real treat to design with him because he'll just be like well here is the rationally correct decision to make at this point so how can we design so that is also the most fun one and make sure that what people actually do is factored in yeah it's a whole it's a really interesting field so at one point we were talking about hidden roles and I said Lords of Waterdeep is a classic example of a hidden role that doesn't actually make you a different person. You're like, no, that's a hidden goal. Uh, it's because we're talking about terminology. It's purely semantics. A lot of people consider that a hidden role. Um, so you could, if you wanted to, be like, nope, that's a hidden, that's a hidden goal. But uh, yeah, it, it is considered by the board game population at large to be a hidden role despite not being a social deduction game. That's all the follow-up that I had. Do you have anything else? Yeah, I just had two that uh, I feel like we should have gone into but didn't, which is we talked about trick-taking, but there were two terms that I wanted to quickly go over, which was trump and short suit. So AJ, what is what is a trump card? A trump card or a trump suit is something that will beat everything that isn't a trump. So if we are talking about classic card suits in a given round of a game, you might have clubs being trump. That means any club will automatically beat any of the other suits in the game but won't necessarily beat another trump. It will then be ranked for its numerical value or something else. And then similarly, what is short suiting? And this is mostly trick-taking, but I think I've, I've seen this in other games as well. So this one's a little bit more complex to explain, but the basic idea is you want to get rid of a particular suit because not having that suit means that when someone else starts off a round by playing that called leading the suit, you will not have to follow by playing the same card of that suit. You may instead play something else. It's a very, very important thing, especially in 500, which I'll mention as often as I can because it's one of my favorite trick-taking games. It is the National Card Game of Australia, I believe, and it's basically better Euchre. So everyone over here knows Euchre, and I'm always like, why are we playing Euchre when we could be playing 500? And short-suiting in 500 is vital, as well as trump suits and etc, etc. One more that I want to know how to define it. What is the human emotion called love? (laughs) You don't know either. Okay. (laughs) I'm doing a bit. You're all good. (laughs) Gotcha. Gotcha. See, it's hard to tell with you because you play it so straight faced. I'm like... Because you're so stupid, Peter. You might actually not know what that is. How am I meant to know? That's all the follow-up I had. Let's jump into on-ramping. Now, I feel like we should open this up with a really, like, easy transition into on-ramping to make it a comfortable experience for everything. What do you think, AJ? I think that sounds lovely. Let's start off by just talking about why on-ramping matters. Peter, from your perspective as a designer and as a publisher, what is so important about on-ramping? So as you know, there's thousands of games published every year, thousands of new games. So as well as having, you know, however many board game geek entries there are in the tens, if not hundreds of thousands, there are thousands of new games coming out every year. And gamers will try to play as many as they can, but they won't buy everything they play, obviously. They won't buy everything they play? Yes, correct. They will play a lot of things that they don't buy, but they will not buy everything that they play. So if you go to a convention and you play 40 games, you're probably not going to walk home with 40 games in your bag. So it's funny. I would say that is accurate. It's also the inverse accurate. <laughs> oh, yes. A lot of people buy more games than they than they play. <laughs> like how many unplayed games do I have on my shelf right now? Probably 20. <laughs> I have... Well, I'm going I'm to count. Two. I have two unplayed games on my shelf. Okay, but how many games on your shelf besides those two did you not also design or publish? Uh, I found another one that I haven't played, so three, and I have 11 that I have played. Right, so like 30% of your collection is unplayed. (laughs) (laughs) 
admittedly, the pandemic was a big influence of that. I also have a deliberately very, very small collection of games because I live in a tiny apartment and have moved countries enough times that I'm like, I gotta stop buying games because you just end up with these piles of games that you need to get rid of. But yes, uh, gamers are, are famous for buying a lot of games and not playing them. So e- even for that reason, actually, yeah, in, in both scenarios, you want to make sure that when someone does play your game, whether it's because they've bought it, I mean, you know, as designers, let's be honest, we're not doing this for the money. We're doing it because we like people playing our games. The money's nice, but there's not much of it. So if you're doing it for the money, you're in the wrong industry, I'm sorry to say. But because, you know, we like that experience of sharing joy with people and providing fun and problems. And so it's really important that the first time someone plays your game, they have the best experience possible, especially, especially, especially in an oversaturated market. You're seeing this as well in other genres. So Netflix, for example, if I'm not hooked in like the first five, 10 minutes of a Netflix show, I'll probably stop watching it unless everyone in my life has recommended it to me. So think of the first time someone plays your board game as the first five minutes of a movie or a TV show that you're watching, not at a cinema where you can't walk out, but on Netflix where you can just as easily click through to something else. Or the thumbnail of a YouTube video or (laughs) the first five seconds of YouTube video. There's lots of different comparisons, but yeah, it's vital that you give people the best experience you can as early as possible. And it's not even just new games that you're competing with. Like one of the biggest problems getting a new game to the table is the fact that you have to learn it and teach everybody the new game. That's a very arduous experience in a lot of cases. And uh, particularly if you don't consider unwrapping. And the thing that you have to consider is that anytime they sit down to try and play your game, they could be playing a game that they already know, that they already like, right? Yeah, I think this is one of the reasons why Jelly Bean has done as well as it has, because our games, you can famously just kind of pull out and start playing almost without reading the rules. Like, not quite, we haven't quite managed that, but pretty close. A lot of our games, you can just pull out and start playing. I have actually literally pulled out multiple of our games and played them without reading the rule book. Just from like the, <laughs> the explanation from you and the back of the box. Uh, meow, I have played without reading the rules. Maybe I'm playing it wrong. I, I wouldn't know. <laughs> One thing that uh, that should be considered as well is a lot of people will say, oh, my game is for hardcore gamers, though. So they're like, they're going to be invested in this. Well, you know how you get hardcore gamers? <laughs> like, no one starts off as a hardcore gamer, even when you know they, they've got a, a strong background with that or even when they hit the ground running they still need some way to ease them into it. And even if you have a hardcore gamer buying your hardcore game, why would you not want that to be a smooth transition? Again, there's tons of games and and it's just not courteous, frankly. It's not, it's not being respectful of your gamer's time if you don't make it as easy to experience as possible. One of the unique things about board games as a medium is I think that you can find examples of this in other mediums, but I think it's more universally true of every board game that the first time you play a board game will be the worst experience you have playing that board game. That's not true of music or songs or books. Or, and again, you can, you can find some where you're like, ah, this movie gets better every time you watch it. And it kind of sucks the first time. But the majority of everything else in every other medium, the first time is going to be probably the peak experience, if not one of the peaks. In board games, it's uniformly the worst. <laughs> what about time stories? I mean, I had a very bad time playing time stories. So. <laughs> Do you think it would be yeah, better second playthrough, though? It might, honestly, I don't know. That was was not a fun experience. Um, By uniformly, I mean with very, very, very rare exceptions, just like the counterpoint is true. So we've convinced everyone that they should on-ramp their games. How do they do that, A to the J? So we're going to work through this start to finish. Um, I'm I'm sort of starting a bit more high level and like rule book stuff, and we're going to work our way through like sort of setting things up and then actually getting into the gameplay. So that's sort of the way that this conversation is going to flow. So to start things off, honestly... Be inclusive. 
This isn't even me getting on my moral soapbox, but if you think about it, how many people are going to be attracted to your game by being able to see themselves in it? Magic the Gathering was famously a white dudes only game for essentially a white dudes only game for many, many years. And when they made a conscious effort to be more inclusive to women and minorities of all kinds, guess what happened? Huge sales spike. And it, <laughs> and it, like it's it's not something that should be hard to grok. Like if you are a white dude listening to this, you might think, oh, representation isn't that big of a deal. Well, that's because you're already in everything, you know? <laughs> uh, and so uh, again, not trying to, to preach to anybody here. It's just good business sense. If you are inclusive, people will reward that with, with sales. Money isn't everything, said the rich man. <laughs> <laughs> Another really important thing is when you're first learning the game from the rulebook, if you are overwhelmed by information, you know what you're going to do? You're going to put that rulebook back in the box and you're never going to touch it again. The way to fix that from your perspective is to write a clear and concise rulebook. And for a lot of these tips, I'm going to be talking about them. And you might think, oh, I'm, I'm the designer of the game. Why would I need to worry about the rulebook? Well, guess what? A lot of publishers are small and a lot of publishers aren't going to rewrite the rulebook or aren't going to spend a ton of time rewriting the rulebook. And even if you do, or even if they're going to, you're still going to make a great impression and, and do a lot of service to the final product by laying it properly in the first place. I imagine you have a lot to say on this. Well, yeah, as a publisher, um, we don't take submissions anymore. We don't take out some outside submissions at Jelly Bean or Coffee Bean. But when we did, I would have a big pile of games on my shelf of like prototypes to play. And so everything that we're saying here about the end customer of like, it's got to be easy to access and so on equally applies the next step down, which is getting the publisher to play it. If you want a publisher to play your game, the better on-ramped it is, the more likely they are. I would pull out a rule book and be like, I don't know what this is. Like, give me, give me, you know, throw me a bone here. I, I'm just going to be on the next one because I cannot work out how this works. We're talking about barrier to entry stuff. Any barrier to entry that applies at the consumer level also applies at the playtest level, also applies at the publisher level. Like it's it's uniformly the same among all of them. I've actually learned since we published Lady in the Tiger that this one has a bit of an on-ramping problem, one that I wasn't expecting. So I have some close friends who I've mentioned in previous podcasts who, you know, I gave them a copy of all the Jelly Bean games or they bought some to support me or whatever. They had a, they had a big shelf of Jelly Bean games and they would sit down to play a game and they'd be like, we want to play the Lady in the Tiger. So they'd pull out the Lady in the Tiger, they'd open the box and the Lady in the Tiger contains five games within it. So they would open the box and be like, we just picked a game. I don't want to pick again. We just did that. What? No. And so that literally they put it back on the box. They never played Lady and the Tiger because it was too unfriendly. They were like, we've already gone through the arduous task of picking a game and now you're asking to do it again. So when we released Jabberwocky, which is the spiritual sequel to Lady and the Tiger, that one has eight games in the box. But the first page of the rule book is, hey, here's the game you should play. Now, it doesn't just say, like, here's the one good game. It says, like, answer this question. Is, are you a group of five? Then play this one. Are you a group of three? Then play this one. Are you a group of two? Then play this one. And it just really, like, spelled out, okay, we know it's hard to make a choice. So play one of these. And all the games in Jabberwocky are so good that once you've played one, you're going to check out the others. Just be like, wait, there are other games this good in this box of games? But it was just about on-ramping, that first-time experience especially, which is almost as vital as every other play put together. <laughs> Absolutely. And the big thing to go along with that is if you've got like optional content, if you've got um, mini expansions, internal expansions. Yep. Or if you even have just variable setups, you want to make sure that the first time they sit down to play it, it is the 
simplest, cleanest, and the best version of it that represents what your game is to these people. Because if it's not, then you're just doing a huge disservice to yourself and you're doing a huge disservice to them. They're not necessarily going to see your game for what it is, right? Yeah, on two different levels. So firstly, you want to make sure that it's as easy for them as possible. So it's not like, okay, shuffle all of the technology cards and then put the you know the highest value ones because then you're like, well, hang on, how do I assess the highest value one or whatever? With all of the Coffee Bean Games, which is the new brand of Jelly Bean Games for adults and, and grown-ups and heavier gamers, every one of our games has, hey, first time playing, use the cards with stars. Use the cards with stars and that does all the work for you. And then once you know how the game plays, having played it the first time, then you can start experimenting with the variable setup. Because the second thing about variable setup is you want to make sure that ideally, you know, there would be no such thing as a bad setup. But you want to avoid any potential bad setups and especially any complicated setups. In Robotopia, which is one of the Coffee Bean games coming out at the end of this year, there is a starting card that gives you starting resources. And they're all the same, except for one of them has a battery on it. So the rest are all like cubes and meeples and stuff like that. This one has a battery. And I used to just shuffle that deck and hand it out because I was like, what's it matter? It's just grab the stuff from the card. But in a game where everyone else had cubes and meeples, one person was like, I, I got oh no, I've done it wrong. Because they don't have the context. They don't know how it works. So star your cards, star your starting cards, star your first play cards so that it's as seamless a process as possible and there is no possible chance of anyone getting confused by that. Yeah, and one really good example of this is uh, if you play the game Pandemic, to start off, you have to build like 10 separate decks and each one will have, they have to be like the same number of cards and then each one you're going to put an Epidemic card on top of, then each of the piles you shuffle individually, then you take each of the piles and put them on top. That is a nightmare to non-gamers <laughs> they like thankfully the newer versions have like really clear infographics but even still that, that is a lot of steps there's a game that i played called pompeii which is an older game and it was like that with like two or three more steps layered on top of that and i <laughs> being me like this is this is like me last year got confused as to what i was supposed to do a, a pretty heavy gamer yeah, yeah and like what the point of it was even and if you look at a uh, matt leacock's other game forbidden island it's very similar to Pandemic, but you'll notice that they don't spread out the Epidemic cards. So it results in a more chaotic game. You just shuffle the deck and go. It results in a more chaotic game, but it's much more kid-friendly. That one's aimed at younger kids and at families. And so that's the perfect decision to make for a, a game that you're trying to make more accessible. These are the sorts of decisions you should be considering, these different trade-offs. Absolutely. So back to, to the rule books. I think that one thing that people get wrong a lot is they will probably have to have Jeff on at some point to talk about rulebooks specifically because he's just so good. <laughs> Jeff Fraser is the co-designer of Cartouche, which is the first coffee bean coming out very soon. And we will hire him for all of our rulebooks because he's an incredible rulebook editor, just does an amazing job. Yeah, we'll include a link to his website if anybody listening wants to hire him. But when you're building a rulebook... Often what I'll see is I'll see people putting in advanced content without flagging it as such. And so you end up reading a bunch of stuff that not only do you not need for your first play, but it's actively going to confuse you for your first play. There's a, a story that I tell often about a time that I sold a copy of Catacombs to a customer. And it's a very simple, well, it's a moderately simple dexterity game. There's there's stuff layered onto it. It's like a campaign dungeon crawl descent mixed with uh, crokinole basically but it's definitely way closer to the lighter dexterity end of things and anyway i sold it to them and they came back a couple days later and they said listen we just we can't understand what's going on we have no idea <laughs> and 
to their credit, like it is like a 30 page rule book or something. And I literally had them on the table playing the game with under one or two minutes of rules explanation. And they understood it. They understood everything they need to play. I walked away. I wasn't needed for the rest of the game. And if I can do that in one or two minutes, why did you need a 30 page rule book to do that, right? And a lot of it just has to do with what information they put where. And if they had laid it out a bit more cleanly, they could have gotten people playing without worrying about all the fussy stuff. A lot of Jelly Bean games will use exactly that tactic. It'll be like, hey, cool, you've read this far, just start playing. <laughs> like, really, you've got everything you need. So Dracula's Feast is probably our most front-loaded game. To really, like, truly understand the full strategy of Dracula's Feast, you need to go through the concept, the core rules, how a turn works, and then, depending on how many players you've got, up to nine character abilities and how they work in detail. That's if you want to completely, completely, completely understand everything before you start playing. It's a five-minute game. Like, five to ten minutes is an average game length for Dracula's Feast. And having a 20-minute explanation is a problem. So what we say in the rulebook is like, hey, here's who you are. Here's what you're doing. Here's the basics. Give everyone a reference card and just start playing. Like, everything you need to know is on the reference card. If you get lost, sure, jump into the rulebook and we'll explain a role in detail. But a single-sentence summary of every character is really all you need to properly understand the game. Or, or to, to, to understand the game well enough to start playing. One thing that a lot of games will do that have a ton of different keyword abilities that we've talked about before, basically it'll be a single word that will refer to a chunk of rules. So if this creature has flying, that means when you attack with it, only creatures with flying can interact with it, those sorts of things. And so what I'll see a lot of games do is they'll have at the back of the rulebook, if you flip the rulebook on its back, you'll see a list of those abilities and explanations. The back of your rulebook is prime real estate for on-ramping. If they have to reference a lot of abilities, like in my example now, or if they uh, if setups a bit of a bear, or if people always forget how many cards to deal, stuff like that. Whatever people are forgetting, that's what you should be putting in the back of the rulebook so people can quickly and easily reference it. Most often, having a bunch of the abilities listed is the best way of doing it, particularly because if somebody learned the rules but not the abilities, well, now they only have to take a look at the abilities that they need right then and right there. They aren't reading through every ability in the game that probably won't even come up while you're playing that that first game, right? Absolutely. On a similar note, infographics or um, icon-based referencing stuff can save you so much confusion. So Santorini, for example, I think on the on the power cards in the abstract game Santorini... They don't even have words. They just have the images. And sure, you can go to the rulebook and have a look. But that image just tells you everything you need to know, especially if it's a spatial-based game, you know, then saying, okay, so you can go to anything that's up and diagonally or up or down and diagonally, but you can't go... Like, putting that in words is going to be confusing. It's going to be convoluted, whereas a little diagram can explain that whole thing in, like, you know, seven strokes of a pen and explain it better and more consistently. And sure, still have the rules in the rulebook so you can go back and be like, wait, what does this mean? Oh, that's what that means. But icons or graphics as long as they're well done obviously <laughs> uh, if they're poorly done they're going to cause more confusion than they save but if you can get good at representing things graphically it can save you so much mental burden and your players so much mental burden typically what i see that works is simple actions or common actions are the things that turn into iconography well if you've got like if you've played seven wonders and you look at the round one or two cards Basically, all of them, the iconography just is so clean, so clear, makes so much sense. Yeah, 
coin with an arrow to the left, coin with the arrow mm-hmm. to the right, something like that. But because it only has iconography, once you get to those purple cards in Act 3, then it's like, <laughs> wait, this has a rainbow and three arrows and a coin, and it becomes a <laughs> lot harder to parse. So I would say use that sparingly, you know, if, if you're going to at all. But it can be very powerful. Well, because we're on a game design podcast, I'll, I'll dive deep into game design. Uh, this will be a nice moment for everyone. I set myself a personal challenge quite often of designing full games with only iconography-based rules. Not, not the actual rule book, but the actual cards and everything like that. I'm very happy to put words on at the end, but as much as possible, if I can't represent an entire idea in icons, I cut that ability. And you might think, well, hang on, you'll be cutting a lot of good abilities. And like, sure, but... It's not like I'm incapable of coming up with different and more and varied abilities. It just means that the ones that make it in the game are able to be represented purely by icons. And that gives them a level of simplicity that makes my games, even my heavier games, easy to learn. Because like you said, if it's rainbow and three arrows and you look at the rule book and it's like, oh yeah, that means actually trade with the person 2D or left, but only matching colors, etc. Then like the fact that it can't be represented in icons, not always, it's not a universal rule, but the fact that it can't easily be represented in icons probably means that it's a more complex rule. And even for a heavy game, having simple abilities will make the whole game easy to learn and have fun with. Another thing you could do is just use the common terms that everyone already knows. <laughs> <laughs> if you're honestly, if you're doing a trick-taking game, you should probably have a quick blurb in there that says, "Hey, if you're new to trick-taking games, or if you don't know what trick-taking means, here's what Trump is, here's what lead means, here's what Sue means." But why reinvent the wheel? Why why increase the barrier to entry? You said that you played Netrunner. I could not penetrate Netrunner. I've never felt like a game hated me before because my hand of cards isn't called a hand. It's called my stockpile. And my deck isn't called a deck. It's called the archive. And my discard pile isn't... And for each particular placement of a card, there's a different term for it. But not only that, there is a different term from the one the game uses for me than my opponent because it's an asymmetric game oh my goodness (laughs) what a learning cliff it was painful trying to play that game so i'm helping david van drunen who's another of the jellybean employees out with a game called beautiful balance wonderful game beautiful beautiful lovely little game and we're working on the rule book right now and we're trying to work out how to skate that line because sure you could use nothing but accepted terms and like you said that'll definitely help with on-ramping but you do also lose something there's something to be said for thematic terms so trump cards for example in this game we're calling dragon cards at the moment i don't know if that'll stick i don't know if that'll still be the case in, in a week let alone you know when the game actually gets published but because it's this game of flight and fire and dragons have that same connotation. Like archive, you're right, is a terrible term because archive, for me, I would assume that was a discard pile, but it's actually the deck or maybe it is the discard pile. I can't remember. Maybe it is. But the fact that you don't even remember and you played and loved this right. game. <laughs> and so, whereas dragon suit or, you know, what's the dragon card this round? I feel like that's got enough power to it that you're going to be like, oh yeah, the one that beats all the others. It's interesting because there is a balance, a beautiful balance. There's a Dominique Crapashudis who's the founder of North Star Games. He did a talk once and there was this one line that I carried with me even five years later, I still remember it. He says, every decision you make in designing your game or in preparing a game for publication is either going to benefit the first play or the 10th play. It's a genuine question. Like if every game was immediately unrampable, they probably wouldn't have that much strategic depth. And 
whenever you make a game easy to unramp, you do lose strategic deaths. So a lot of the stuff we're going to be talking about is tricks to improve your first play without disadvantaging your tenth play. Stuff like, you know, starring your starting cards, etc. But yeah, it is a trade-off. It's not as simple as like, always do the thing that helps with unramping. Because, you know, cutting player powers would help with unramping. And cutting everything that's not just a normal game of chess or checkers would help with unramping. <laughs> but you'd be losing a lot in the process. Absolutely. It's, like we've said before, it's a cost, right? And you just have to know... Is this cost too high to pay? Every one of these little things could be a barrier to entry for someone, but it could make it, like you said, more memorable for them in the long term. It's like uh, with iconography, technically that's an extra layer that they have to learn, right? They have to learn this icon means this thing. If it's done really well, then that process is very quick. And from then on, at a glance, you'll be able to see what it means. I don't know if you know this, but icons or, uh, or pictures are able to be processed by the brain, I believe it's 60 times faster than words. I did not know that. That's interesting. Huh. A lot of my favorite games are icon-driven, so that's why I like making icon-driven games. But the more I do it, A, the better I get at making icons. Uh, I'm just flat out quite good at it <laughs> these days, he said modestly. Uh, whereas when I started, that was not the case at all. Zero percent was that the case. And secondly, it really shapes the way that you think about individual cards. Because if you limit yourself to icons... It really does cut off a lot of stuff that you can do, but that's not inherently a bad thing. If you're trying to make a game that is very, very rich and deep, sure, maybe you've cut off too much, but if you can make a game that's rich and deep while having that little cut off, I know there's, there's something about that that's really fascinating to me. Definitely. Another thing to think about is when you're setting up the game, what does that process look like to the players? So the obvious thing is you don't want a long, arduous complex setup right so we already talked about pandemic <laughs> what's the game <laughs> have you seen this this there's a game that was on kickstarter it did surprisingly well the setup video looks like a joke i actually thought it was a parody video oh, really? at first it's like a 40 minute setup video and as it goes on the things get more and more convoluted and ridiculous and it's like put the goose in the goose house Give everyone three Twiddle D cards or something. I'll have to find a link to the show notes. It's amazing. And I actually thought it was a parody, but it's a real game. It's a real game that did pretty well. And it's just got the most ridiculous setup you've ever encountered. Wow. I, I have to see that. <laughs> so the way to think about it is it's like, again, everything's a cost, right? So if it's a complex thing that the, that the player has to comprehend, that's a cost. If it's just the amount of time it takes to put out all the bits, that's a cost. And like we said, there's tricks for these things, you know? Wasteland Express Delivery Service might be unplayable without game trays, but with them, it makes <laughs> uh, makes setting up the game a snap. Like, you literally pull off the lid, and everything is already in the perfect position for everything. And there's been a few games that um, my, my heavy Euro friends have brought out, and because... Thank goodness they've got lots of disposable income. They'll always come with inserts that have everything set up quickly and easily. And without <laughs> those, I would not have played a lot of those games, you know? I had the Feast for Odin. Um, I can't remember who made it. I had the insert where it's, it fits in the box, which is impressive because that box is packed full of stuff. But all the components come out in these little trays. They're very lovely. And one of them is shaped like a Viking ship. And the first player token in Feast for Odin is a moose or, or something like that. And it's got a little spot in the stern of the ship. So, you know, the moose is just... Right in the ship. It's very cute. <laughs> That's very nice. <laughs> and again, you might be thinking, well, I'm a designer. The publisher will work this all out. Like, yes, ideally, but publishers love it when you bring them cool ideas that make your game better. <laughs> Why would they not? <laughs> the easier you make it for them to imagine the final product and the less effort that they have to put into making it the final product, the better. Why, why would you not want to do that if you can, right? Absolutely. So if you think about 
uh, setting up. Again, you want to make it as easy as possible. And there's a lot of ways to do that that people might not think about. For example, in Aquatica, there's a bunch of different goals that you can play with. But of course, like we said, there's a starting set of goals that are a bit simpler, a bit easier, a bit quicker to compensate for the fact that it's your first game. What they did was the starting goals are printed on the board and all the advanced goals are tokens that you would cover up the board. That's one less step that the players have to do on their first play. That's so clever. I'm probably going to do that for some games coming up. I hadn't even thought of that. That's amazing. <laughs> Another one is when you're laying out a board, if, if there's like preset scenarios, then you should make it as easy as possible. I played Undaunted a little while ago, and it's like, put card G here, and then put card B2 here, and then put card A here. Flamme Rouge, the first interest scenario, goes A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Like, why would you not do that? You know, as soon as you start thinking about these things, <laughs> you know, it becomes so obvious, but... When you're, when you're just focused head down on your design, these are the types of things that maybe you wouldn't consider, right? This is the worst thing about my second favorite game of all time, Istanbul. The first game setup, so there's 16 tiles that are numbered, and the first game setup is not 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. <laughs> it's like, uh, why, why Istanbul? Why, maybe they changed that in a later version, but uh, I was so offended that I think it's like the intermediate game is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and the easy game is like 2, 7, 5. It's ridiculous. You know the uh, the game that Pandasaurus did the new version of with uh, Quan Chi Warriors? The game that's called The Game? Yeah, the, the worst titled game of all time. The Game Called The Game. Yes. So yes. they've got gorgeous, really nice uh, art and graphic design done on it. And cards 1 through 10 are one color and set. 11 through 20 are a different color and set. Peter, you've played the game. Why is that suboptimal? Oh, I haven't played it for years. Um... Okay, so the reason why... How does the game play? You play your cards and you're trying to go in a particular sequence. What's the special thing you can do? You can jump backwards exactly 10. Right. So if they've got 100 cards and chunks of 10 have special art on them, instead of going <laughs> 1 through 10, why wouldn't you make it 1, 11, 21, 31? Why not those are the special ones so you can immediately clearly see the ones that you can place to jump back? Yeah, that would be <laughs> so much better. Um so much better that's yeah that's offensive (laughs) i was so disappointed because as soon as i saw the front cover i was like oh this is gonna make it so much easier to play and then i opened up and i was like oh man come on (laughs) this ease of setup is something we very heavily focus on in jelly bean games Uh, meow is one of my favorite designs that we've published and the setup for that is shuffle the deck and then put originally it was always 13 so it was originally just shuffle the deck put 13 cards in a pile, put the rest back in the box. That's it. That's the setup. Deal everyone one or two cards, whatever it is. Now I think it's something like, if you have this many players, deal everyone one card. If you have more than that, deal everyone two cards, put one in the middle. That's it. That's the setup. Like there is so little setup to that game because it's a very light, fun, weird game. But even something like Scuttle. Scuttle is shuffle the deck, deal everyone four cards, end of setup. Like that's it. You're done. We really try to... I I said earlier that, that I think we do well because our first games are so easy and that's because this is one of the things that we really think about if we can cut a step or if we can make it easier if we can make it more intuitive we always always do that a great example of that is uh, gloomhaven when they wanted to make a lighter leaner version of it for people who are too intimidated by gloomhaven's frankly very heavy package in every conceivable meaning of the word <laughs> they made the jaws of the line and one of the things that takes the most time in gloomhaven is just setting up the board because there's so many different pieces and finding them and interlocking them what Jaws the Lion does is it has a flipbook and 
all you have to do is go to the right page in the book and it's a big spellbound thing you fold it out and then the board is right there so again if you're if you're looking for something that's just a cleaner lighter leaner way of doing things that's a really useful tip for campaign Absolutely. games another thing you can do and there, there's sort of two opposite ends of this is what when we're talking about player powers character powers faction powers if you want things to be simpler, have lower complexity for, for players, then like we said, you, you want everyone to be on the same phone, so it's, it's simpler. But on the other hand, asymmetric abilities can give players focus and direction through the game so that they can so that they can more easily say, okay, there's a million things going on. My faction, it fights. It's the one thing it does. So all I'm going to do is try and get into fights, or I'm the trading faction. So I can do all this stuff, but I'm just going to trade. And you've sort of got like a head start strategically for new players. It can be tricky because the thing you want to avoid, especially especially in first game, is rules exceptions and rules weirdities. And so again, this is why we star stuff, because we're like these ones are as clear cut as you can get. They're very basic, they provide a good experience, but especially you don't have to learn anything new for them. And so a faction that's like, ah, now when you fight with your neighbor, you get plus seven. And when you fight with someone who's two away from you, you get this. But if they're next to the neighbor, then like, don't do that as, as a starting ability. But if it's something like in every fight, you roll an extra die. Great. You know, fill the game with, with player powers like that, especially first experience, because they don't require learning any more rules. They just slightly or intuitively augment the rules that you already have. My favorite example of this is It's a Wonderful World, which is a drafting engine building game where it's, you know, those cube conversion games. You get X resource, you want to convert it to Y resource and gobble up the cubes to get points and stuff, right? So in that one, the asymmetric player powers are just what resources your faction generates automatically every round. And so maybe I generate blue resources, maybe Peter generates black resources. That gives us different directions to go and to start, but without being too heavy handed, right? There's no extra rules overhead for players to worry about. Exactly. I want to give a quick shout out to my favorite on-ramping experiences I've ever had. Have you ever played Fog of Love or King of Death Monster? No to both, actually. Basically, what both these games do is they say, listen, you do not need the rulebook and <laughs> just, just start playing. And they do it in slightly different ways. In Kingdom Death Monster, it does use the rulebook, but it says, here are some very basic concepts. Here are some very basic things that are going on. Now just play. Honestly, it's like two pages or, or so of rules, and then you start playing. And this is a really heavy game. This is like Gloomhaven heavy of a game. And within two pages, I know what's going on. I get to start playing and doing cool stuff. And I have a quick little scenario. Again, it's like it's like a short, light intro one. And then it says, okay, now we're going to start you off with like the, you know, the campaign sort of stuff, the, the outside of combat stuff. And then it says, here's a tiny little tidbit. This is basically all you need to know for now. And then you're basically already playing the game. You already know how everything works, even though there's tons of systems you will discover as you play. And the rules even say, listen, we're not teaching you everything. This is a big book. You can read through the whole thing to start to finish. And there, and there are comprehensive rules written out just like a regular rule book. But you're not going to, we're not going to tell you to read it all up front. Just read it as you need it. What a, what a breath of fresh air, right? <laughs> I've seen some games do a similar thing where they're like, hey, play until you hit this point, then come back to us, basically. So it's, you know, play until the end of the first round. Okay, end of the first round. Great. Now add these cards in. Uh, in future games, these will be in all along, but we didn't want to overwhelm you. They're not quite this verbose about it, but uh, that kind of thing. So I actually teach a lot of games this way. I'm working on a big heavy game called Providence right now, and I will teach as much of the game as I need to to get people started. 
And then at the end of the first round, be like, okay, cool. Here's the other two decks that are relevant. Here's what they do. Here's how they work. Let's play the next round. At the end of the next round, I'll be like, okay, cool. Here's the last two things in the game. This and this. Bam. Now you know everything. But rather than making people sit through the entire rules of every part of the game, including the bits that won't be relevant for at least a few rounds. So yeah, when rule books do that, I, f- I find it a really interesting approach. So Fog of Love does it even better. Fog of Love? You open the rule book and it says, don't bother. It literally says, don't read this. You don't need it. Get a refund on this game. You're not going to like it. <laughs> Instead, you flip the rule book on its back and the back just says, put this here, put this here, put this here. And you just set the components out on the table and, and it says, now pick up tutorial card one. You pick it up and it's on the top of one of the decks and it says, okay, here's a quick explanation of like high level stuff, what's going on in the game. Pick up, and, and then basically you just look at the table and you see tutorial card two. You pick it up, and it's like, here's an anatomy of a card. Start playing, and then you just start playing. And it, it feels like someone's literally standing over your shoulder and teaching how to play as you go. <laughs> and like you said, they, they introduce advanced cards as you play because the game comes manufactured with the cards in a particular order. Oh, that's interesting. You'll play back and forth, and you'll then eventually hit the next tutorial card. They'll say, okay... Now we're going to introduce this more complex card. You're going to start drawing these now. It is an unbelievable experience and it has completely changed the way that I think about on-ramping in games. And every single game I design, I will at least try my best to make it have what Fog of Love has because it was that good. Have you ever played any of Friedman Freeze's fast forward games? Fast forward I did, games? yes. Yeah, it's 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 similar to those. Yeah, because that, that is basically, this doesn't have a rule book, it's just a deck of cards, which I was so fascinated by. I designed a game like that, and then the publisher was like, we need a rule book, they put a rule book back in. And I was like, but I was doing the, I was doing the cool thing. <laughs> <laughs> have you played any of Vlada Shavartal's, like Galaxy Trucker, Space Alert, even Mage Knight, any of those? Uh, I've played Galaxy Trucker, yep. So Galaxy Trucker, and all, all those games, probably others of his do it, they basically say, look, Rule books have two functions. One is to teach you the game, one is to be a reference, and they just split it up. They're like, here's the rule book that teaches the game, and then here's a separate rule book that is the reference for how to play the game. So the first one is kind of like what I was saying with the starred cards, except it's like, take the starred cards, put them in this order, and then, you know, just follow along through this book as you play. And it's basically someone sitting there teaching you the game. And then the other one is, is a rule book reference, which is a great idea. Some of my friends didn't know that there was a second rule book. So they just played the <laughs> tutorial game over and over and over until they were like, man, this is such a cool, good system. It'd be really nice if there was more than just this one scenario. Oh, well, I guess we're done with this game. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of the dangers of having two rule books. FFG have done a lot with two rule books, and I think they've had very mixed success. Like, yeah. With X-Wing, I got playing in like seconds, literally like one minute of reading, and then I was in the game, and that was great. But most of the time it's like, oh wait, they're kind of not actually complete. I would say avoid doing that type of thing unless you're very confident in that, just because there's a lot of ways that you can subtly make mistakes. And cold play testing, which I will rave about until my dying day, is the best way of getting a good rulebook. If you're not sure how people learn your game, give them a rulebook, give them your game, watch them learn it. And you will learn so much about your game and about rule books and about everything that you can learn. So now we're going to talk a bit about comprehension for like just being able to grok what we're talking about. Scaffolding is the one that term that we have used so much here. So I don't want to go over it in too much depth. But again, the basic idea is you're building off of pre-existing knowledge. If you're making a complex worker placement that's designed for hardcore gamers, you probably don't need to worry too much about people understanding the basic concept of a worker placement game. Like obviously still have it in the rules, but you can assume that your audience is going to be able to understand that and you can then build and do more advanced things with that. 
Similarly, you can use uh, tropes. If people are familiar with werewolves, then you can have things that transform in your game and they're, and they're going to say, oh yeah, that's what a werewolf does. It's a little bit like the Planet of Hats idea, which is a reference to old Star Trek episodes where they'd be like, ah, yes, on this planet, everyone wears a hat. On this planet, they're all in love with bears. And it's like, well, hang on, we live on a planet, which is not a uniform, like everyone acts the exact same way. But when you're doing a Star Trek episode, it's a a Planet of Hats. So if you can be like, ah, yes, these are barbarians. They are all, you know, all the tropes of barbarians. Then cool. People are like, oh, yeah, I get it. They're barbarians. Yep, I know what that is. Mm-hmm. And it's not as useful for creating like a, a beautiful holistic universe where everyone's <laughs> diverse and special, but that's kind of the point is we're trying to play off of the tropes so that you can get on board quickly and easily and we can play in that design space, right? Yeah. If, if, if that's um, what you're trying to do, a board game is not necessarily the fastest route to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you can also use other conventions as well. Like one big thing is turn order. Do not mess around with turn order unless you have a good reason to just go clockwise. There's things like that where people already have this built in. Why go against the green, right? And if you have a good reason to, by all means, as we mentioned before, Hanabi is a good example of a game that goes against the grain of what we want to do. You hand me some cards. I want to sort them by suit and I want to look at them. And Hanabi not only can't rearrange them, you can't even look at your own cards. Like we said earlier, the better solution for Hanabi would be to use tiles or dominoes or something like in their deluxe version where they did literally use dominoes because players don't have that association with the cards that they do with the dominoes, at least not to the same extent. If you are going to do that, if you are going to do something weird, make as big of a deal of it as possible and make your whole game about that one weird thing. Don't give them too much to worry about. As Hanabi does. And that's almost the selling point of Hanabi. It's like you have cards that you can't see and people are like, cards that I can't see? That's not how cards work. I want to play this game. <laughs> one thing I'll say is um, being able to tie mechanics into themes can be very useful for players being able to get on board more easily, as, as we said. But don't stress out too much about making everything one-to-one as an example for magic there's a equipment that you can give to your creatures so you can give them a pair of magic boots and then they get to move faster right but you can technically equip the boots to any creature and a whale is a creature so you could have a a, a whale wearing boots going really fast and like if you stop and think about it it kind of doesn't make sense from this combination but individually the things are thematic and there's so many parts in magic that players are willing to give it a pass or to laugh it off you generally want to avoid exceptions and you generally want to avoid extra fat. And this is something we've said before, but it can creep up in ways that you might not expect. For instance, in Gloomhaven, they want it to be really thematic. And it, this is a game that was very much designed for the 100th play, not the first. They have two abilities that are called different things, but have the same effect. You can fly or you can jump. Any reasonable game that was looking to onboard players would have just called the ability fly. And it's like, yeah, I can fly when I have these boots. Yeah, I jump really high. I, I get it, I get it. You didn't have to have two different abilities. Because they're designing it for the 100th play, not the first, that's why they went with that. But again, these things all have a cost. You have to think, is it actually going to be worth it for me to make the distinction? Gleam is very much a lifestyle game. One where you're, you're in it for the long run. Mm-hmm. I'm working on a game right now called Providence. And we're changing one of the core kind of structures of the game. So in Providence, you can play a worker or you can play a priest. And they just do different things. They're just different types of workers. And at the moment, they just both kind of cost one of your actions. You only have a certain amount of actions per turn. But at the moment, we're considering a thing where on your turn, instead of playing a priest or a worker, you can play a priest and then a worker by paying for the worker 
to solve a different problem. And it's kind of become this, this tangled knot of rules exceptions. And either way we do it, there's a rule exception. So, I mean, ideally we'll find a solution that's like, ah, zero rules exceptions whatsoever. We did it. But right now it's kind of like looking at the two examples and being like, okay, which one's going to be more intuitive? So right now we're saying when you do a priest, which is a weird worker anyway, that does weird stuff, then you can also pay to play a worker uh, because the priest is already weird. So the more kind of rules exceptions you can hang onto the same area, kind of the better. And that way it's less rules exception. It's just like, oh yeah, that piece works differently. The knight in chess, for example, is the only piece that can jump over other pieces and it moves weird. And the fact that those things are combined makes it not as bad as if there was one that could jump over and one that moves weird. By tying them both together, it's just like, oh yeah, that's the special cool piece. Of course that has the different rules exceptions. Obviously. Yeah, the more you have something weird that you can point to and be like, yes, it is really weird, the the easier it is to, to parse, for sure. Yeah. So now we're going to move on to uh, strategies and early direction so that players can develop heuristics and get into the game as quickly as possible. This is a big one, yeah. Jeff Fraser, who I mentioned earlier, he's been working a lot of Euros, and he's just kind of like at the point of every time I make a Euro, the first thing I'm going to add in is here's your starting goal, because it just does such a good job of giving players an immediate off-the-bat direction. Here's the thing that you are trying to do. Here's a card. Cool. This card just tells you what to do. Go for it. It's as simple as that. Honestly, there's nothing more to add than, than that. It's it's a really easy way for players to have direction when they don't fully understand what's going on. I'm trying to make as much wine as possible. Cool. I will just start doing that. And at some point during that game, they're going to pick up on the rest of the game that they were ignoring. I even did that with uh, with Anachrony. The first time I sat down to play it, it's been a while since I've played it, but there was one section of the board that I didn't quite 100% grasp. And I was like, you know what? I don't need to worry about it. And so then as the game progressed, I saw other people using it. I was like, ah, yeah, okay, I can get it. Now I can start worrying about it. But at the very start, when I, when I first got taught the game, I could just focus on my own little objective. Yeah, and there's a few ways to do this. One is just, hey, starting goal, get two red apples and you'll get 10 points. And you're like, okay, cool. The only parts of the game I care about right now are the red apple parts. Oh, there they are. Cool, I'll do that. And just by doing that, you'll learn how the broader systems work, but it just gives you something to focus on. Second thing is, I think what you were talking about of like, hey, at the end of the game, you'll get a point for every red apple you have. As they're teaching the rules, as you're learning the rules, you can ignore everything that's not red apples because you're like, okay, this is about to understand. Scythe does this in a really interesting way, which I, I really enjoy about it. So Jamie put these cards in that you give to people for the first time playing. And it says, hey, first time playing? Cool. In your first turn, just pick an action and see what it does. Don't, don't care about it too much. Okay, cool. On your second turn, try to do this little thing. You don't get bonus points for it or anything. It's just like a little give you direction card. And it's like, oh, you come up to your fourth turn? Great. Okay, on your fourth turn, try to activate the top and bottom of your, of your worker board and see if you can do that. And it's very didactic, but I really, I really think it works. It just does a good job of being like, hey, are you overwhelmed by this game? Here's some very short-term goals. You won't get victory points for it, but if you're overwhelmed, this will be a nice little lifesaver for you. See, I like the idea of that. I had heard them described before, not quite like that, and that sounded much more heavy-handed than that is. Um, but I think that's I think that's a nice way of doing it. But like you say, it's quite didactic. Um, I think probably my favorite example of um, of giving players direction in a super organic way. This is less like high-level strategy and more just early direction. There's a game called Feria. It's a very complex game. It's like Magic the Gathering with a board. It's got a lot going on. So it's common for newer players to kind of be overwhelmed by all the different combinatorics of things that they can do as they build the board as they play and utilize their resources, summon creatures, move around the board. There's all sorts of stuff going on. 
But the fundamental aspect of the game is you can use your creatures that you summon to harvest Faria. All your cards cost Faria. You see that there's these nodes that generate Faria, and those are the only feature on the board to start. What are you going to do? And the game's called Faria, right? <laughs> Naturally, you, you build a quick path to one of those nodes, and you start harvesting it, and before you know it, you're in the game, right? So that's a really, really organic way of easing people into a more complex game by giving them a, an obvious short-term goal. This is reminding me of a do not do, avoid, 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 don't do. And this is kind of more forgiven in older games, but when I see it in a modern game, I'm just like, what are you doing? Which is do not make the first thing that your players have to do make a huge decision that will determine the rest of the game for them. Uh, Settlers of Catan is probably the most obvious example. The first thing you do in Settlers of Catan is draft board positions. If you're a new player, how like how are you meant to do that? And what's more, your board position in Settlers of Catan is the single most important decision you'll make in the game, some argue. Like if, if you pick the wrong position, you're out of the game from turn one. So the first thing you do in Settlers of Catan, pick a position. It's like, well, okay, cool. I picked the wrong one. Now I have to sit here and lose a game forever. In Robotopia, I mentioned that we have these starting cards that used to have batteries and stuff like that. In the full game, you draw three and you choose one. In the starting game, you take the starred ones, shuffle them, deal one to each player because it doesn't matter that much. It's just more of a like, oh, cool. You know, I can decide the, the journey of my game a little bit. But if it's your first time playing, you don't want that. Don't make players make a, a, any kind of decision before they've learned the rules, basically, <laughs> especially not a significant one. Yeah, and in fact, uh, we've mentioned the decision tree before, which is basically the paths that you can take as the game progresses. And the way that you want to build a decision tree is you want to start off with very few decisions because you don't want to overwhelm new players and have it sort of organically blossom out as they play the game. And then typically you actually want to curve back inwards because you don't want the game to go on too long. And if someone knows that they're losing, again, it's just a laborious process of having to go through all these different options. Whereas if it sort of funnels back down again, then the game will trend toward an end at a comfortable pace. An example would be uh, chess, where even though it starts off very complex and stays very complex, the beginning of the game and the end of the game are way simpler than the middle of the game, right? Yeah. Scythe, again, to bring up uh, one of my favorite games, Scythe does a really good job of this. It deals everyone two kind of like end of game objective cards or, or long-term objective cards. And you can only complete one. And a lot of games would be like, hey, here's two, pick the one that you want to do. Scythe is just like, here's two. You will only complete one this game, but you can hold on to both of them, which A, let's play as pivot, but B, it just removes that decision point at the start of the game because what's the advantage of that? Mm-hmm. Another thing to give players early direction is you need to telegraph what is actually good strategy in the game and what effects are going to be good. And I mean, a lot of people listening are probably going to say, well, I'm going to make everything good. (laughs) Um, And you probably won't say that by the time your design is done. But the idea is you want to make sure that players don't get tricked into doing something that isn't optimal. I'll give a couple examples from Magic because that's a game I know very, very intimately. In the early days of Magic, when they were just beginning to playtest, there's a famous story where one player traded a mox which is basically you can play this for free and it will generate you resources every turn for a forest, which is a card that, which is a land that you can play for free and generate resources every round. The difference between the two though, is that you can only play one land per turn. So if I have four moxes, I can play all four and I'm generating four resources every turn immediately. If I have four forests, I can only trickle them out over the course of the game. But that distinction was lost on them. In fact, many newer players of Magic don't understand that Moxes are the most powerful cards in the entire game (laughs) because they look so similar 
to some of the weakest cards in the entire game. Yeah. On a similar note, give people an easy or an obvious, give people an obvious thing to do that's good. So again, Robotopia is a game I'm working on right now, so it's on my mind a lot. There's a bunch of different spaces in Robotopia of various complexity. Four of them, I just get a cube. And what's more, there's a clear hierarchy of cubes. So if you can get a green cube, just do that. that that's great. Grab a game cube. If you can get a green cube and a blue cube, the two most powerful, yes, do that. And even if you don't need them right now, even if you can't use them, even if like, it means that if, you're, if your exact goal is not available, then you're just like, okay, well, that's obviously a good action. As the game goes on, maybe you won't need them or you'll need different things, but it's the equivalent of, of you know, a button that says take $5. If I'm not sure what else to do, I'll be like, well, five bucks is pretty good. So I'll, I'll do that as I work out how the rest of it goes. So I don't, you know, get sit there and over, overanalyze every possible option. Give them some easy do's. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times people who are designing games are thinking, but every decision should be arduous and there should be trade-offs. <laughs> and I remember I was having a conversation with my with my dear friend Brent, who is who is wonderful. And uh, he was commenting on, uh, on resource systems that are different from Magic, where instead of having some of your cards be resources and you randomly draw them, you know, you can have any card be a resource. But every single card should be like exactly balanced on both ends as opposed to which way you want to play them. And in a recent Magic set, they actually had cards that you could use that with. You could play them as a resource or as as, a, as an action card, essentially. And what they did very di- distinctly is they made the effects on those resource cards very situational because they didn't want you looking at your hand of cards and thinking, well, this card, it's a tough decision on this one. This card's a tough decision on this one. You just have so many different tough decisions to make. It would really bog down the game and be exhausting. Yeah. Whereas you can see very quickly, oh, this card will only destroy an artifact. My opponent doesn't have any artifacts. Okay, I'll play it as a land, you know? Those types of situations where it's easy for the players to be able to understand these things without having to uh, put in tons and tons of effort into the part of the game that isn't the core fun of the game. I think that was our note on Nate Wall's pitch for a game where like, you start with seven cards and you can each use each of them in seven ways and something like that. I was just like, man, I'm worried that'll bog people down. Similar to what I was saying about offer obviously good moves is that i will quite often just not let people access big chunks of the game <laughs> a little bit like what i was saying earlier about at the end of round one i'll be like and now i'll teach you the next thing except for essentially built into the game so providence has this present system where you can't access every space you have to be adjacent to it so it means that at the start of the game you can only access like the inner spaces and then once you've placed you can access a few more outer spaces and so on and so forth so yes you can look at the whole board and be like okay eventually i want to get there and it'll take me like five turns of placing people out to do it. But if you're a new player, you're just not going to be thinking at that level. So instead, you're going to be examining the six options that you have and being like, well, which of these six do I want to do right now? And again, we've made some of them really obvious. It's like, well, this one is just money. So I'll go there because I like money. And so that is a nice way of allowing 10th play and first play. When 10th play players are like, okay, based on the cards that I've got or the board that I've got or whatever, I really want to go out there. So I need to start thinking about how I can take advantage of the spaces along the way. New players are like, I'm just going to ignore all those spaces I can't access and look at the six that I can. Very good point. One really, really big thing you can do to let new people into your game is increase the amount of luck in it. What luck does is two really, really important things. The obvious one is it gives them a shot against the better players. You could be playing against the literal best magic player in the world and maybe they just draw all resource cards lands or they draw all spells, non-lands, 
and they just aren't able to play. And I mean, that's a very extreme example, but the luck of the draw in Magic can be very punishing and can definitely give the weaker player a significant advantage over a better one. Another thing that luck does is it way reduces the information horizon. So that thing I was saying about like locking off spaces artificially does that. It doesn't technically limit the information horizon, but it does make you be like, I'm just not going to think about that. It's like they don't exist. Whereas if you genuinely don't know what's going to happen because you won't find out until the next card is flipped, until the next die is rolled, then that really does reduce what you can process because you only have what's in front of you. So Diamet or Incongold, you make a decision and then there's literally nothing you can do until you see the next card. There's no more decisions that you can make. It's a beautiful little game. And it's completely cuts you off at the knees. You can't sit there and, and analyze what to do because you don't know until the next card comes out. So yeah, luck in both those senses can definitely help with on-ramping. That's a huge thing in Twilight Imperium as well. That's a very complex game, but it's not like the ships have deterministic combat values. It's very random. And so because of that, you have to really, it, it limits the amount of exhaustive planning that you can do, which is good because there's already so much of it. The other really important thing that luck does is it provides you with an ego shield. If you lose, it's not your <laughs> fault. It's it's because you drew badly. It's because you rolled badly. And that's actually really useful, protecting players' egos, even though it doesn't help them get better at the game if they blame all their mistakes on luck, it does make it more likely that they'll play it again. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, before we wrap up, two quick things I wanted to mention. One is Ravensburger's rules. We were talking about rulebooks earlier and I forgot to mention it. They did this interesting thing where they'll have the rules on the left and then a little column on the right that's just like a summary of what each of those sections is. And you can theoretically just read the column and be like, oh, at the start of the game, deal everyone six cards and then put your pieces out and then do this. Or if you want the full exhaustive rules, you go on the left-hand side, it's like, at the start of the game, deal everyone six cards. Based on this, for this reason, uh, out of this deck, etc. So it's got all the details on the left and the summary on the right, which is great not only for like, if you're not into reading heavy rules, you can just be like, I'm just going to follow the rules in the column and trust that that'll get me there. And secondly, when you're trying to reference the rules, you can just kind of scan that right-hand column and be like, ah, this is the part about how witches interact, and then I can read the full rules. The other thing, this is something I've really learned from cold playtesting, which is trying to design your game so that if it's played wrong, it's still fun. Now, that might sound <laughs> wildly contradictory. Like, well, why do I want anyone to play my game wrong? Well, you don't want them to play it wrong, but people will. And if they play it wrong, is it still an enjoyable game? So you mentioned earlier that you've played Meow without the rulebook and had a good time. And I'm like, great. Yes, that's perfect. Because I don't know if you're playing it right or not, but it doesn't matter because you're having a good time either way. So... I do a lot of cold testing. I do a lot of cold play testing with all my games, and one of the things I'm looking out for is like, oh man, they misunderstood that rule, and the whole game collapsed. So I either need to make sure that that rule is really heavily emphasized, or rewrite the game so that even if you miss that rule, you still have a good time. So now on to the only part of the show that we're allowed to have fun—the fun question, where we <laughs> ask each other an off-topic question that has nothing to do with game design. So Peter, there's a movie being made about your life, and it's going to go start to finish. Is there an actor or actors? What a that you weird way portray? to do a film, huh? Interesting. <laughs> Is there an actor or actors that you would like to portray you at a particular time or times of your life? Oh, um, I get compared a lot, and this is not compliment. I get compared a lot to Fat Rob from "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia." <laughs> uh, I've Rob? never watched. Uh, I watched like two clips and I was like disgusted by that show. So I haven't seen it. That, that show is not for you. It's very good. It's very well written, but it's it's definitely not for you. Um, so Rob is, is the one of the main actors. Uh, he plays Mac. Um, 
so Fat Mac, I guess is what they call me, but Rob, I can't remember his surname, is the guy who writes it, and I get compared to him a lot. So I guess he would look like me. But beyond that, not really. Like, there's, there's no one in particular. I'm like, yes, Jeffrey Rush would be the only person to capture my je ne sais quoi. He is from the same town as me, Toowoomba in Queensland. But uh, no, no, no one particularly springs to mind, honestly. How about you? There's no one where the personality is a perfect fit. But I think in terms of looks, I think, uh, have you ever seen the YouTube series from Fairbarn, Fairbarn Films? No, I haven't heard of it. It's Australian. How do you not know it? <laughs> um, they do like little YouTube comedy sketches. There's Lachlan, who's the one who I would want to to play me. He he, pretty similar, at least without the beard. If he was playing me when I was younger, before the beard, then Lachlan Fairbarn would be the one. And then Jackson's his uh, brother who does all the skits with him. Fairbarn Films? Yeah. I'll send you a link afterwards. Oh, I have seen this. I just didn't know the name of it. Yeah, no, my... Uh... <laughs> I just got sent this the other day. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, okay, and then we normally end with a teaser for the next episode. AJ, what are we talking about next time? Next time, we're talking about elegance and cognitive load, which will be a very natural dovetail from the things that we've been talking about here. I'm looking forward into sort of digging deeper into these concepts a little bit. We sort of on-ramped you to those concepts for this episode. And next time, <laughs> we'll have more of a cognitive load. Exactly. So a, f- a really efficient way to squeeze extra depth out of a system is by coupling together two different systems. So when thing A happens, thing B will happen. Um, we've talked about this a little bit before, but I wanted to, to just go into it right now as we were talking about this topic in particular. So why is that useful? And can you give us a quick example or two? The example I always use is from Caverna, Cave to Cave, which is just oh, such a such a clean design, which is when you empty a, a cave out, then it flips over and becomes a building on the market that anyone can buy. And it's brilliant and elegant and beautiful in so many ways. So that works for a few reasons. One is that it kind of balances the game a little bit in that when I do a thing that's really good for me, I provide an opportunity that's good for you. Secondly, it removes the need for a separate upkeep phase where you're like, ah, end of the round, put a new building out. Thirdly, it balances the game so lovely. In, Thirdly, it balances the game so beautifully because you only need to build new buildings when you have empty cave rooms, and so the new buildings appear when you have the empty cave rooms. Ah, oh, it's so wonderful. Um, <laughs> it's just it's it's my favorite example of all time. My favorite example of all time, as I believe I mentioned earlier as well, is uh, Traders of Osaka, which is like a gamer's ticket to ride. There's three simple actions, and each one of those actions has multiple different repercussions for everyone at the table. It's fascinating it's it's so good this concept is what my design in jabberwocky was built around my design is oh i should know this brillig or bandersnatch i can't we, we changed the name of the two of them at the very end so i can't remember which one's mine but the the two-player game that's designed by me in jabberwocky is based around this concept that every time you take an action you're actually taking two actions so when you bid you're putting your bid on the card and that's part of like what you win and, and when you sweep the deck then you're, you're putting them in different places it's all it's all inherently tied around this like every action is two action thing because i just i think it's a lovely lovely way to design games so that is all for this episode of fun problems if you've enjoyed it please let us know uh, there's an outro that'll give you all the details there and hopefully we're making you make better games that's the goal that's what we want to do we want to share what's in our brains put it into your brains and then squeeze your brains into a smoothie and drink them that's a long-term plan (laughs) don't don't give it away (laughs) that's all from us i'll talk to you next time i'm pdc hayward i'm aj brandon bye bye guys
Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at FunProblemsPod or reach us via email at FunProblemsPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend.